Well, bless the Lord. Redeeming love has been my theme. Amen? Redeeming love is our theme. We are here because redeeming love drew us here and brought us into this place where the, the saints of God, the saints uh, simply means sanctified ones or saved ones, set apart ones, set apart for his purpose. So we've been looking at the living blessed the last few weeks. We may return to that uh, as a specific topic. But what I want us to look at today is this letter of Paul to Titus. I've been getting a lot from this epistle uh, in recent times. Uh, it's a very strong, meaty message in many ways that allows no room, no wiggle room. You know, we, there's a lot of stuff today that goes on in, in Christian circles that gives people wiggle room. You know, you can live how you want. It doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, all that stuff. Um, God loves you anyway, and he does, and that's true, and, and God is merciful. But we ought not confuse God's mercy with license to do what we want. Amen? God is still a holy God. And you know, if we really want to see God move in Scotland and other parts, then we need to engage with his holiness, with, with a holy God, not with the God that we would like to think he is that he winks at sin and doesn't care. Now, I'm not beating anybody up, um, but God's true mercy is far more glorious even than the mercy that many would accredit him for, which is just to wink at stuff and say, well, that's okay, I love you anyway. God loves us too much to leave us in a depraved um, state. Anyway, let's look at this epistle. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul was not afraid or ashamed or embarrassed to tell people what and who he was called to be in the Lord. I hear a lot of people talk about, oh, well, today's leaders are tight, you know, they don't claim titles and they're faceless ones. Well, Paul was all too happy to tell people he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he did say he's a servant of God first and foremost. Amen? We need to be the people who serve God and not just be, and, you know, and, and especially for ministers or pastors or preachers, it's so important that we serve God and not our denomination. You see, I, I see, you see people, uh, ministers, and they are not able to serve God because they have to serve the denomination first. They have to stick by the rules. And if the rules contradict this book, then they're in the wrong place. Amen. But a lot, of, a lot of ministers say, well, you know, I get my living from the church, I get my house from the church, I get my car from the church, so I'm not going against my denomination, um, I'll just toe the line. But you can't be a servant of God and basically serve a denomination that is not serving God. Amen? Now, I'm, I'm not saying that you can't do it on a, your local parish basis, if you like, but, you know, anyway, that's a whole different message uh, that we could go into, but we're not going to go down that route because I want us to look at other things. According to the faith of God's elect or chosen. Now, I've said this before and I'll say it again, that we uh, have lost in the church this notion, and it's not a notion, it's a doctrine, but we've lost this sense 
or concept of being the elect. Previous generations of Christians understood that they were chosen or elect, and we could again go down into Calvinism and the sovereignty of God. But when I was a young Christian and you got saved, you knew that God had chosen you. You knew it wasn't you chose God. That was your response, yes. But he, he put his hand upon you. So, you know, in a sense, I've always been Calvinistic to call it that because I knew that God chose me. And you have that sense or understanding that at some point in our lives, God put his hand upon us for a purpose. Amen? And I know some of you have that sense. Maybe all of you do. I hope you all do. But God, God has a purpose for me. He chose me. He, and we could talk about destiny. And, but, the, but, you know, there's a lot of talk today in the church about destiny. What's my destiny? That's nothing wrong with that. But the old word, predestination, God has predestined us for works that he has chosen for us. So we are the elect. And, you know, that's a, an old, old theme of, as I said, Calvinistic thinking, uh, the reformers, the covenanters, down in England, the Puritans, people like that. We need to recapture because, you know why? Because it reminds us that we are special to him. He chose us. Now, our heart is so full of, or should be, his love and his grace that we want everybody to enter into this. Amen? But there is this dimension that we know, yeah, you know, the gospel is for, God's not willing that any should perish. The gospel's for everybody. But there's something I know that God chose me. And so we're the elect. So you, you might have stood for parliament a few weeks ago and got nowhere, but you're elect in heaven. The election's already been held and you were elected. Praise God. And the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. There's another old word, uh, a King James word, but you know, it, it, it's after godliness. We have to have the, a godliness. Godliness is a great old word. What does godliness mean? It simply means that there's something about you that is godly, i.e. you are like God. Okay? Not saying you are God, but, but his personality, his presence, his truth in his word has so rubbed off on you. His spirit so saturates you that people say there's something different about Ray. There's something different about David. There's something different about that person. There's, some, there's just an essence about them. And that's godliness. And, you know, in this world, it used to be people could recognize it more. But in this world, you know, people are so full of themselves that they don't, but they will. If you are truly at walking with God, there'll come a point where, and it's maybe already happened to you, people say, what's different about you? You've got a peace, you've got a calmness, you've got something in you that I don't have. And that, that's what people should recognize. So godliness. But of course, it also means that we live a, a holy life, a life set apart for him. Um, you know, if we're out at the, the, the pub every night, um, then we're not, going to, we're not going to be recognised as godly, unless you're in there with a the war cry. Amen. You understand what I mean? In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot be promised, sorry, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. 
God, before the world began, God promised eternal life. In fact, Adam and Eve had that dimension of life. And that they, you know, if Adam and Eve had not eaten the fruit, they'd still be here today. I think it was Bert that said that a few weeks ago. And it'd be old Adam. We'd probably be having him as a guest speaker. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are coming to Glasgow. Can we have them in our church? Amen. Because they, there was no death until they ate the forbidden fruit. So, eternal life was always in God's mind. Now, of course, they messed up, but God had a plan. And the plan was that even if Adam and Eve fell, which he knew they would, there would be eternal life available through his son, Jesus Christ. So, uh, it says here, in hope of eternal life, but it's, it's not saying, well, we hope that we'll have eternal life. That's not really what it means. It means an expectation of eternal life. In other words, we already, if, you, if you're in Christ, you already have eternal life in you. Okay? But what it, it's talking about that you'll never die. Your body may die, but you will see, uh, have a resurrected body. Amen? Uh, and that we will live eternally. But that eternal life is already in our, in our man. It's just not showed up in our body yet, but we will have a glorified celestial body. And um, there'll be no frozen shoulders. And there'll be no sickness, there's no disease in that body. And it will always be the body of a perfect athlete. Amen? Some of us already have that, uh, but others, you understand, you will have a body. Never mind Superman. You'll have a body that can go to the far ends of the galaxy like that. Glorious. Praise God. This is a, a beautiful verse, this verse 3. And it's a verse I want to focus on a little bit. It says, but hath in due times. That normally means has, and in, in, in right now in other words, okay? Um, hath, has the appointed time. At the right time. Okay? Or in his time. And that time is now. That's not a future time. That time is now. That the appointed time, due time, is now. It says, in due times, hath in due times, manifested his word through preaching. And that word manifested in the Greek is the same word for revelation, apocalypsis in other words. Or apocalypto, I think it is. It, what it means is, is that God reveals his will, his purpose, his word, and the depths of it to us through preaching. That's why preaching is so important. You know, a lot of churches have done away almost with preaching or pushed preaching to the side. Let's have 45 minutes of praise and worship and a few intimations and then a wee pep talk for 5-10 minutes at the end. But if preaching is not central to what we're about, then how can God manifest his word? It's not that he doesn't manifest in other ways or in the worship or prayer and stuff, but God has chosen that this is the method. Now, we don't have to have pulpits. We don't even have to have church buildings, truthfully. And, and by the way, in case you think, oh, preaching, that's what Bill does on a Sunday morning. It's not just for me. Matthew chapter 20, uh, Mark chapter 16, 
go and preach the gospel to every creature, Jesus said to every single one of us, we're all called to preach. It might not be a pulpit ministry. You're not necessarily called to be the next Billy Graham. You're not called to be necessarily a famous evangelist, preacher, pastor, you know, but we're all called to preach. We're all called to share the message. Um, Sister Pearl was uh, praying the other night about speaking to people, am I right? Telling people this glorious message. We neglect to do it. And you know that's preaching too, sitting beside somebody in the bus. Now, I'm not saying you should get all weird and get your Bible out, can I share this Bible verse with you? You know, there's a right way to do it and there's a weird way to do it and I counsel you not to be weird. Amen? Because nobody likes that Bible. I don't like it. You know, I mean, I've been in, maybe in the street, listening listen to street preachers and it's great, but when a wee man comes up to you and goes, are you saved? You know, you say, mm, well, you know, because this is meant to be a normal thing. Amen? And in fact, one way of putting it is we gossip the gospel in the sense that it's done in a way that, that it's natural, not that sort of a, you know, uh, flaky way that people do it. And I don't like that. And uh, I hope that I don't do stuff like that. Anyway, praise God. But he manifests his word through preaching. So God's purpose, God's will, is always brought about through preaching, which means really somebody sharing this gospel message. And it's not always, are you saved? It's, it can be, can I, can I pray for you so that you look a bit troubled? You understand? We share the good news. And the good news is that is, is very often somebody's felt need, as they call it, is different from someone else's. Not everybody's sitting fretting about their eternal destiny, although that's vitally important. Maybe some people are living in a house where maybe they're a battered wife or things like that. Or their, their children are, are in trouble at school and things. And there's always something in this book that can meet that need, if we know the book. Uh, so praise God, he manifests his word. And what that really means is God will meet people at the point of their need, but through us preaching to them. And as I said, that doesn't mean, you know, standing in the street corner. There is a place for that, and that's where I started preaching. And when it's done right, it's, it's powerful and it's effective. But you, you don't go on the, the bus with your Bible out and say, as you're all sitting, I will share from Titus. Okay? Here's what will happen. You'll get thrown off the bus. Amen? And you'll be in Shanks' pony. So anyway, praise God. We know that. But just, it's so important. He, he manifests his word through preaching. And look what he says, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Saviour. Now, I want to say this as a, a pastor, as a preacher, as a minister of the gospel. This is not just for people who identify in that ministry level of maybe full-time minister or, or you know, reverend or pastor or whatever. I believe this is for every one of us the word is committed to us. Because, you know, we talk a lot about being reformed and evangelical and Protestant, but the, the, the big thing about that was the priesthood of all believers. 
that there was a class of uh, people called clergy created by man. That they were, they were the ones that were entrusted with the Bible. And we all know the story about how uh, the common man, the ordinary man, you and I, were not allowed access to this book. Because it was for the clergy, it was for, you know, the ministry. And brothers and sisters, there's still too much of that thinking goes on. As a friend of mine once preached, Roman relics in the Protestant parish. There's still too much of that thinking of, well, you know, it's the man with the, with the dog collar. It's, it's those that are called, that's who this word is committed to. No, this word is committed to every believer. Every believer is a king and a priest. Now, um, you may not like it, but we're all priests. It might, be, it might be too Catholic sounding, but we are. But the Bible tells us clearly, the, the, we're a royal priesthood. So, and it's not—it's certainly not uh, a Roman Catholic priest that we're, we're called to. It's the true priesthood of God, the Melchizedek order, and we're all in it, brothers and sisters. So, you might not have a pulpit ministry. You might not have that, but you are all, every one of us, as if you're in Christ, the gospel has been committed to us and the preaching of it has been committed to us. And, you know, preaching isn't just standing up and speaking before a crowd. Preaching, as I said, is sharing, gossiping, telling people the word. So praise God. So to Titus, mine own son, after the common faith. Well, you know, the common faith might not be so common anymore. Um, but I, I like how he uses that phrase because it's a common, as I said, there is no, there is no, a dimension of this that only applies to ministers uh, because the clergy laity divide is man-made, it's not made of God. And you know, Paul was an apostle, he just said so. But Paul sustained himself through working his own business. He was a tent maker. And when we hear that, we tend to think of Paul as you know, he made like scout tents or the old-fashioned scout tents, which is a white sheet, two poles, and maybe a couple of ropes. That's what we think, a scout tent. Or he just made these tents for people. But here's what I want to ask you. Why would people want to go camping in Bible days? You know, camping is, is, is something people do for, for fun. You know, like... Uh, Maybe you should do it in the camps with the foundry boys. But they didn't do that sort of thing in Bible. They, oh, let's go camping. Let's see if Paul can give us a tent. That's not the tent making that he was talking about. What the tent making that he was talking about were, was what we would call today mobile homes. And tent making was a profession that's, that's and it was a very lucrative profession. And in order to do it, you had to have training in architecture and building and, and all that, because it was, it was for rich people. Tents were made, we would call them tents, but it was mobile dwellings. And it would be the finest of uh, materials that were used. There would be big, big things. You know, it would take a lot of thought, because when rich people or nobles travelled in those days, they would travel with an entourage, an army or, or an armed guard, because they would very often be taking their goods with them. And they would, there were bandits on the road, so they would have to defend them. So these dwellings, these mobile dwellings, were, were like the, 
luxury and the richness that these people were used to in their homes, they wanted to take that on the road with them. Just like today, millionaires and billionaires, if they travelled in mobile, they would use hotels maybe, but if they travelled in these big mobile homes, you know, it would cost fortunes. And so Paul's profession was not building scout tents, it was building these things. And there was others in the New Testament who were in a similar profession. And it's believed that Paul served his apprenticeship in the temple, learning the building trade, and he then used that in this profession. So Paul sustained himself through... Now, he said in another place that he was entitled to receive payment for his work in the gospel from the churches. But he chose to forgo it. He actually said God ordained that. It was, it was God that ordained that. But he chose to, rather than be a burden, he continued his profession. And he would do it on his travels. Now, what he's saying here is this, is that he was an apostle in the church, more entitled maybe than any other Christian ever has been to get a living from what he was doing. But he did it. He, he got his own living through his, his business of tent making. So, praise God. Now, look what it says here. To Titus, mine own son, after the common faith. Um, it's common. We're all called to the same thing. We all share in the same faith. There is no, like I said, there's no elite faith for people in the ministry. In fact, I've said it before and I'll say it again because it's a good point, time to say it. The, the James Nisbet street up the road there, I was quite struck with this man when I read it because you know, somebody's named, a street is named after a man. I didn't know it was a covenant until fairly recently. I should have understood that, but, you know, streets are named after people. And I read about this guy, and there are, there are as far as I know, at least three James Nisbets, or Nesbit, whatever it is, and they're all come from pretty much the same part of Ayrshire. Um, but one of them was a famous preacher, and he was martyred. And another one was not so famous, but he was martyred. And the third guy is the one whose the street up there is named after him. Now, he wasn't a preacher. He wasn't martyred for preaching and being, you know, a leader in the Covenanters. He was martyred because he attended meetings. Just like today, if it was the law that you, in, here in Gamgad, here in the Foundry Boys, you came into the meeting uh, and that was illegal and you could, punishable by death, you could be taken out of here, you know, you're not the pastor, you're not a leader, you just came to meetings. That's what happened to that man up there. Now, I did read his testimony before they hanged him. And I, I tell you what, if ever a pastor could preach what that man said, there would be some pastor, because it was just so full of truth and the depth of this man's. But all he ever did was attend meetings. Why? Because back in the Covenanting days... They had real Christians. They had real reformed evangelical Protestant believers. And, and, you know, a lot of them were never preachers or leaders, but my God, did they know their Bible? And did they know God, the, the God of their Bible? 
So we need to get back to that. That's the whole point. And that, I believe when you read Titus, there's something of that spirit is shared with us from, from the Holy Ghost from this book. Because this book is written, to, I believe, to, to, to Titus, of course, but it's a, it's a solid, powerful, meaty word. And he says, Mine own son, after the comedy, grace, mercy, and peace from God and the Lord Jesus. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldst set in order the things that are wanting or the things that are lacking. So what Paul's charge to Titus was, you stay in Crete and get these folks whipped into shape to be a proper church, a proper ecclesia. And ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. Okay, appoint elders as I have given orders to you. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe Titus was disappointed that he couldn't travel on with Paul. We don't know, but his task, his job was to, in effect, build up the church in that area. And then he says, this, these are the qualifications. If any be blameless or above reproach, that really means the husband of one wife, um, having faithful children, not accused of riot or, or a dissolute life or disobedient. You know, in other words, here's the standard, Paul. See, a lot of people might feel a call to the ministry, but they don't necessarily qualify to, to be in the ministry. What she's talking about your leadership. That there has to be a standard, amen? And, and we very often don't see it. Um, he says, for a bishop must be blameless. Now, before you think that we're going down the road of Catholicism here, because he uses that word bishop, um, although so do the Anglicans. Bishop is an old English word that means overseer or pastor, you know, you could say, but it really means overseer. And it's actually King James that insisted that words like bishop were kept in the King James Version uh, because it's, it was churchy sounding, okay? But we would just say for an overseer must be blameless as the steward of God. That's the key thing. When, when, you, when you're in, you're given any task in the ministry, you're the steward of God. Amen? And we've lost all that. We just think, oh, just... A lot of the culture today in churches is roll up, stroll up, you know, just, oh, you're a leader now, that's great, you know, and we can still do what you want. But we need to get back to Bible standards, folks, don't we? And, you know, the standard isn't different for leaders. Anyway, it's just saying you can't make somebody a leader that isn't living right. That's all he's saying. We all need to live right. Amen? It's not saying, well, you know, I'm only allowed one wife, but you're allowed five. Right? Why you would want... Five loads of trouble, I don't know. One's enough for any man. Amen? <laughs> Just think, yeah, David made a good point there. Five wives, five mother-in-laws. I'm out. Amen? But they did, they did, they did have, in some of these places back then, uh, they, they would have uh, cultures where you could maybe have more than... And people would get saved out of that. They'd have more than one wife. So, you know, but we're not the Mormons... We don't have sister wives, amen. We only have one wife, God bless her. Eh, praise the Lord. For a bishop must be blameless. And then he says, not self-willed. Not all about himself. Uh, not soon angry. You know, as I read this, 
it examines me too. Because as my children will tell you, uh, if I'm driving, road, the, the demon of road rage can come upon me. Am I right? <laughs> well done. <laughs> uh, your pocket money just went up. Not soon angry, not given to wine. Uh, no striker, which means not violent. You know, and again, that's something it's tied with anger, isn't it? Because there's been situations, and, and when you're a, a pastor or when you're a, a preacher, it's, it's very often, and I've even seen it happen over there as I'm parking the car, is that maybe something will happen or some, somebody will do something and you, your instinct, jump at the car and start, you think, wait a minute, they all know, they see me walking in here type thing. So, there's an exacting standard, but I do want to stress, it's not saying that standard is only for uh, people in ministry, as we would call it. It's the standard for all of us, but what he's saying is you can't promote somebody and make them a pastor or make them a leader if they're not living like this. But the challenge for all of us is we're all, we all get angry, don't we? And we all are tempted to lose our rag. Not given to filthy lucre or ill-gotten gain or... In it for the money. Okay? Um, I could tell you stories about that, but maybe another time. But a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate. And sober doesn't just mean you're not, you're not drinking. It means to be sober in your, you know, doesn't mean you say you can't have a laugh, doesn't mean you say that you can't tell mother-in-law jokes. But what it means is, is that your approach is serious to what you're doing. Just holy, temperate, or self-controlled. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught. What a, what a phrase that is for all of us. Do we hold fast the faithful word? Well, we're running out of time, so we're going to leave it there. Um, now we'll pick up there maybe next week. Holding fast the faithful. Let's take that little phrase away with us today that our task for the week ahead is to hold fast the faithful word. You, you know, you don't need to know every 66 books to, to memorise them. A lot of people, when they want to know God's word, they, they feel they've got to pack as much in as, you know, take one Bible verse that speaks to you and hold fast to that until it goes from here into here. Amen? And becomes part of your, your life, part of who you are. Hold fast the faithful word. The word is faithful to us. The word will never let you down. And as you meditate it and speak it and pray it and believe it and receive it in your heart, you will become somebody who's fashioned after that word. To be renewed in the spirit of your mind, to conform to his word. When you, if you want to be godly and Christ-like, it means conforming to what God says. So hold fast the faithful word. Let's just briefly pray and then we'll close our service. Father, we just thank you for your word today. This letter of Paul to this man, Titus. Lord, we maybe not know too much about him, but what we do know is that, Lord, it was thought important enough by Paul and by your Holy Spirit to write a letter to this man that we can share in today. So he has a ministry to every believer, this man, Titus. Uh, what, a, what a privilege that must be for him. And Lord, it's a privilege for us to read these words written to him and understand. They don't just apply to him. They don't just apply to pastors, leaders, reverends, ministers, all of that. They apply to each and every one of us. That we must be blameless and without reproach. And that we must hold fast the faithful word. Help us to do it, every one of us, in Jesus' name.
Amen. And just one quick one. It's not just for men either. Let me say that. This is for all of us. Praise God. So let's close our service by singing our final hymn, which is 167. And what I'm going to see here is we're going to just sing three verses, which, because I think one of them will really struggle to sing because there's more words in it, I think, that will get all garbled. Don't sing verse two. Make me a fisher of men, keep me, because I think we'll end up. So we'll sing verses one, uh, three, and four. Give me oil in my lamp. And those of you who learned this at Sunday school will be fond memories for you. Give me oil in my lamp. Keep me burning. Oil in my lamp. Keep me burning. Give me oil in my lamp. I pray. Give me oil in my lamp. Keep me burning. Keep me burning till the break of day. Sing Hosanna. Sing Hosanna. Sing Hosanna to the King of Kings. Sing Hosanna, sing Hosanna, sing Hosanna to the King. Verse 3. Give me joy in my heart, keep me singing. Give me joy in my heart, I pray. Give me joy in my 